Well, we're going to turn in our Bibles tonight to Romans. We had been, before Christmas, we'd been working our way through Romans, and we got to the end of uh, chapter 7, and we are jumping in tonight to chapter 8. John's going to be opening that up for us. John is uh, leaving at the end of this week to head for uh, America again for a week uh, to study in RTS. We wish him well for that, and uh, we're delighted that he's able to uh, open up Romans chapter 8, the first part of it uh, tonight. We're going to read it all, however. Um, when, when you're in the Alps, some of you have been to the Alps, and you, you know that, that wherever you look, it is just wonderful, but there are some views that are even more wonderful than others. Now, wherever you look in the Bible, there, there, there are wonderful things to behold, but there are some parts that are even more wonderful than others. And Romans chapter 8 is one of those great vistas in all of the Scriptures. So, we're going to read this uh, tonight. We're just going to think tonight of the first part of it, but we are going to be in it for a few Sunday evenings. And uh, tonight, we're going to read the whole chapter. So, this is page 1134, if you've got a pew Bible. And as we read, we remember this is God's Word. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mindset on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, 
in order that we may also share in His glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us His Word. Well, do open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8 this evening. And as Nigel said, we're going to be here for the next number of weeks, and uh, we're really looking forward to chewing on Romans 8 again and again and again, uh, like a good piece of meat, well, perhaps an overcooked piece of meat that will uh, keep us chewing and chewing. We're going to be in this. And so as we open it up here this evening, we're really going to focus on the first 11 verses, but within that, we're only going to be able to cover a few of the verses. So here's the question tonight, what's your greatest battle? 
what's your greatest battle right now in your life? I wonder, is it uh, the battle that you have made with yourself to go to the gym? You've said, look, I'm going to go to South Lakes, and I'm going to be there every Monday, uh, and so far so good, but you know it's going to be a battle again tomorrow. Or perhaps it's just with chocolate. You're, you're battling chocolate. Maybe whenever it comes to the better weather, uh, you battle against the grass that constantly needs cut. Maybe you battle against your alarm clock at each and every morning. There are great battles that we have, but what is the greatest battle? Well, the greatest battle for us is a battle that happens inside of us, inside our chests. As Christian people here tonight, the greatest battle that we have is raging inside of us. Look at chapter 7 and verse 15. Paul says, and this is, uh, we were obviously here before Christmas, so a little bit of a recap. Paul says this in chapter 7, verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. For I, do not, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. You see, the sin and the saved self are at battle inside of us. Sin and the saved self at battle. Look at chapter 7, verse 24. Paul concludes, wretched man that I am. And with this battle with sin, what happens in the Christian life is this. The enemy comes and he tells us, you're not worthy. You're not worthy to be a Christian. You can't really live for Jesus. And the enemy does what? He condemns us. So, what's our response to that? As we are involved in this battle, and as he condemns us because of our sin, we have a couple of different paths that often we go down as Christian people. The first one that the enemy tries to take us down is this. He tries to burn us out through pouring in all of our efforts to serving. But we're serving out of the wrong motivation. We're serving as a way to make payment for all of that sin. Here's 10 things that we have done that is wrong and against the Lord. So here's 10 ways that I'm going to try and serve the Lord to earn back credit. We try to become a super Christian motivated by performance, with the conclusion being that we end up insecure and broken. That's one avenue that we like to go down. Or the second avenue is this. We believe the voice of shame, the voice of guilt that wounds us deeply, and we become a bystander in the Christian faith. We let sin take us out of the game. We believe that our sin means that we have no role to play for Christ and for His kingdom, we believe that our sin means that we can't follow Jesus closely, that He would want us not to, not to walk closely with Him, but instead to keep our distance. And it, in our minds, we have banished ourselves to the outskirts of the Christian faith. Because here's what happens. Our sin brings us shame. Our sin brings us regret. Our sin brings us insecurity. And our sin brings us great pain. So, into this situation, here's the question. How do I live a life in the power of the Spirit? How do you, how do I live a life in the power of the Spirit? Now, for some people across a, a recent history, they've tried to say that if we're going to live a life in the power of the Spirit, what we need is a, is a second blessing from the Lord. We need some sort of mystical moment. We need to be filled for a second time with the Spirit. And I don't believe that's what the Scriptures teach us. 
Others will say, how do I live a life in the power of the Spirit? Well, I'll wait for this moment when the Spirit will be given to me in a, in a greater sense. I don't think that's what's going on here in Romans chapter 8. So, what does it mean to live a Spirit-filled life? What does it mean to walk in the power of the Spirit? Well, uh, we have two points really for us tonight. And the first is this. If I want to walk a Spirit-filled life, if I want to walk in the power of the Spirit as a Christian, is, and what I've been saved to do and to walk into, well, I've got to understand what I've got to understand. Romans 8 and verse 1, no condemnation, now I dread. You are forgiven. If you're a Christian here tonight and you want to walk in the power of the Spirit, what must you know? You must know Romans 8 verse 1. There is, and reading from the ESV here, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? Read it again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we need to read it again? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, to live a life shaped by the Holy Spirit, first we've got to know that we are forgiven. There is no condemnation. And that means past, present, and future for the Christian. As we have been saved, as we have been uh, taken into Christ, that our past sins, our current sins, and our future sins are forgiven. And so, what that means for us as a Christian is this. Stop suffering inside yourself with the sin that you have committed. It has been dealt with, and it is forgiven. We're tempted, aren't we, to keep replaying the same mistakes that we have, that we have made in our past. We, we run them round and round and round in our minds. Christian, tonight, we need to know that they have been washed out. Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. And Christian, you need to realize tonight that you've got to stop questioning if you're on the right side of things. Have I done enough? Am I on the right side of the scales? Will the Lord accept me? Is He, is he pleased with me? Does He love me? There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we get this? No condemnation, none at all. What will help shed a little light on this? Chapter 5 and verse 18 of Romans. You see, Paul, he doesn't just, as we come to it, it's not just one snippet after another. There's a great flow within the letter. And so, in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, what does he say? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You see, the gospel, it's even, it's even greater than what we think it is. The gospel is good news. It's better news than what we could ever dream. Because here in Romans chapter 8 then, in verse 1, legally before the great judge, we have no condemnation. The gavel falls. He sentences us and he says, no condemnation for you, Christian. If you're in Christ Jesus, then you're free. Legally, the sentence has been passed. Now, the question should be, if Romans chapter 8 Verse 1 comes to us, how? How can we stand here and say there is no condemnation, past, present, and future, for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. And there is the clue at the end of the verse. This great doctrine of union with Christ, we are in for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those whom the Lord has done what united us to Himself. Fused to Him. Welded to Him. Stitched to Him. Tied to Him. Use whatever descriptive word you want. You are in Christ. United to Christ. It's one of the great doctrines of Scripture. And it means for the Christian that we're saved. We're united to Him. The hymn writer puts it like this, and we're going to sing this to close. Jesus and all in Him is mine. How? Because we're united to Him. He says, alive in Him, my living head, clothed in righteousness divine. You see, all the benefits that are Christ's are then ours. All that is His is mine. All that has happened to the Son of God happens to us. We're united to Him. No condemnation, not because you've been a, a good person, not because you've earned it, but because you're in Christ Jesus, and those who are in Christ Jesus are safe. Now, follow Paul's logic here. He's, he's come with this huge statement. There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Our sin dealt with, our shame dealt with, our guilt dealt with but he needs to explain it a little bit further. How did that happen? Well, follow verses 2, 3, and 4. Verse 2, for the law, and Paul uses different, he uses the law in different ways through his letter. Here it simply means power. So, for the law, the power of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law, from the power of the law of sin and death. He has set us free, Verse 3, God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. By the coming of God's Son in the flesh, He took our condemnation. Isn't that what He says? He took the condemned verdict. He stood in our place in the courtroom. Verse 3, He, he stood and verse 3, condemned sin in the flesh. Sin no longer now has supreme power over us. It no longer has this stranglehold on humanity. Christ came. Christ laid down His life, and He took it up again, leaving sin and death in the grave. And verse 4 tells us, He had to do it. There was no other way. In order to require, uh, fulfill God's holy and perfect law, it had to be done by Christ. So, you see, Paul gives the statement, and then verses 2, 3, and 4, it folds it out for us why and how this happened through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we have to understand is this, that what we're looking into here in these first four verses is effectively what's going on inside of ourselves, this great battle. And we need to understand that because we have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ, it means we're under new management. We have a new boss. That's what it means to be born again. There's a new person living within us. And this doctrine of union to Christ means that with Christ and His death, we've been set free. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. He set us free from the penalty 
of our guilt. He has paid it all for us. Our union to Christ means that because Jesus rose from the dead, that we have this irreversible righteousness that is now ours in Christ Jesus. Yours and mine. And, and so, as we look at this, as we start to unpack it a little bit, we got to start to figure out how this changes our lives, how this works in our day-to-day life. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, most of our trouble as Christians comes from failing to remember Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. That's why I read it a few times, hoping that it's going to stick in our minds for the days that come ahead. Most of our troubles are due to us failing to remember Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Why is that? It's because we don't live out the gospel. We don't live out of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And once we stop living out of this place of no condemnation, this place of verse 2, freedom that we have been set into, once we, once we give that up, once we forfeit that, once we lay it back, then what happens to us? Well, the flesh wants to condemn us, and we stop walking in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life. In these 11 verses, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, in the ESV, the Spirit is mentioned 11 times. You want to know what a Spirit-filled life is? Chew this and chew it again. I once went on a mission trip, and I'm not sure what they fed us on this particular mission trip this one night. We had a head torch on. We couldn't quite see the meat, but it was meat, I think. And the potatoes were lovely and soft, but the meat wasn't, and you had to put it into your mouth, and you had to chew it and chew it and chew it. And then your jaw would eventually get sore, so you'd have to spit it out, and then you'd have to eat a wee bit of potato, and you'd have to pick up the meat again and go again, and chew it, and chew it, and chew it. That's true. And Romans chapter 8 is a little bit like that. You've got to keep chewing it. You've got to keep getting into it. You've got to keep mulling it over, working at it, and and working at what's exactly going on, because Romans chapter 8 verse 1 changes everything in our life. You're no longer condemned. You're free, Christian, so figure that out. What does that mean? It means this. We have been loved endlessly in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the well of His love will never run out. And because He has loved us, then that means that we love one another, and we love the stranger, and we love the outcast, and we love the vulnerable, and we love the hard to love. And because of what we have here in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and what we see the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, then it means that we have been forgiven. And so we forgive. Our sin has been separated as far as the east is from the west. We have been given a new life and a new identity, and so we forgive. We forgive those who have wronged us because we've been forgiven much. And we've been born again under new management, united to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that means we live differently, new desires. You see how Romans chapter 8 verse 1 starts to play out in many different ways? We're free from sin, and that means we live with joy in our lives. We should be the happiest people in all the world. We should have a deep joy. Why? Because that condemnation of sin that loomed over us, well, the gavel has fallen on the Lord Jesus Christ and not on us, and we're free. sinful people who have been born again. We're alive. And because of this verse, we are at peace with God. 
And that means that we should rest in Him, and our fears should melt away about tomorrow, about next year or about next week, because Jesus will be with us. We're in His family circle. You see uh, uh, further down in the passage, and we'll come to this eventually, verse 15, see how we're now brought into the family of God itself, and we can call upon our Father, Abba, Father. All of our anxiety because of Romans chapter 8 should be flushed out of us because of what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our dreams and our hopes and our ambitions should now be changed, and they should be changed into kingdom-shaped ambition and values and purpose. You see how this impacts so many aspects of our life? We'll never cover it all in just a few moments. You want to live the Spirit-filled life? You want to walk in the power of the Spirit? In New Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we are forgiven people. Our second point, we want to walk in the power of the Spirit then it means we must kill sin. The hymn writer put it, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. There's an activity here. There's an activeness to our Christian life. This is verses 5 through 11. We want to live in the power of the Spirit. We put sin to death. Look at chapter 7 and verse 22. Chapter 7 and verse 22, Paul says that he delights in the law of God in his inner being. He loves the Word. It brings him great joy, great happiness. He loves to worship and to praise. But then look at verse 23 of chapter 7. But I see in my members another law, another power, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here's this great battle, the battle between the flesh and the spirit, and there's a division within each of us. Now, we got, this is really important for us, so I want us to work hard at this this distinction of what's going on inside our inner life. These distinctions are vital because for us, while guilt is gone and the reign of sin has ended, sin continues to indwell us and plague us. So, if you are a Christian tonight, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have repented and you have believed in Him, do you understand what has happened to you internally? Do you know who you are? Because inside of you, there's been an internal revolution as such. You're no longer under the command of Satan. Ephesians chapter 2 makes that really clear. Once you followed the prince of the power of this world, but now you don't. There's a new commander-in-chief. Your allegiance has changed. Christ has come. He has invaded your life by the power of the Spirit. He has rescued you and taken you from the rebel force into His family. You've been made new internally. There's a new person that lives within you, and you've been given the Holy Spirit. But internally, as you have this old self, you have also a new self, okay? So, the two are existing. You have the old self and the new. Now, the new reigns. It's the one that's in control. It is the power. You're indwelt with the Spirit. He lives within you. But the old man is still at work. It's like there's an old sinful man, an old zombie of a man that lives within you, 
that hangs around and lurks within you, and this old man wants to drag you back. He wants to take you back into who you once were. He wants you to go into death again. He wants to take you captive. But the new you, the born again you, has been indwelt with the Spirit, and He lives within you. But you're God's. No condemnation. You're in Christ Jesus. You're no longer held by the power of Satan. So let's be really clear here. Sin still exists, and the sin in our lives still has the potential to deceive us and to, and to take us away from God. But if you like, there's an ongoing mop-up operation in our lives internally until He returns or until He calls us home. So once we understand this, this is super important, we will no longer then confuse the ongoing presence of sin with the absence of new life in us. This is where we start to get into the realm of assurance, and we struggle as Christians. We see sin in our life, and we think, well, because of this sin, then I'm no longer a, a child of God. No, no, what you need to know is that you have become under His reign. There's been a revolution in your life. You're born again. You're indwelt with the Spirit, but the remnants of your old life, this old man still exists within you. Now, I realize that this is hard. How do we illustrate this? I thought this might help, okay? So, maybe you're a uni student, or you're into batch cooking, and you think, I'm going to get ahead for this week. So, what you do is you get all of your pasta, and you get it into a big pan, and you boil it up, and you get your tomato sauce, and you put it all into your Tupperware, right? And you put all of the Tupperware into the fridge, and you go to bed, and you think, I have achieved something. Here we are for the week, all the meals set. But as the week goes on, you eat one, you eat two, you eat three, but there's a little box of pasta that manages to sort of slip into the back of the fridge, you know, goes in behind the potatoes or the carrots. And maybe a week passes, and you don't really notice it, and, and now every time you go to the fridge for the milk, there's a, there's a bit of a smell, isn't there? You think, oh, I wonder what's going off in the fridge, but you close it, oh, I'll deal with that later. And a week turns into two weeks, and it turns into three weeks. And now every time you open the fridge, there's a bit of a smell that comes out of the fridge and lingers in the kitchen. It's so potent. And you think, I really need to sort that out. And then you go into the fridge, and you hunt for what is it? Is it the carrots that are off? What is it? Is it the parsnips? And then you find this old, musty, moldy piece of Tupperware that has stuff almost starting to grow out of it, and you open it at arm's length with a mask on you and pour it into the bin, and you start to scar it. But, but the fridge, even yet, whenever you open it, you can still smell it. There's that linger, isn't there? That linger of this old, festering, moldy, disgusting thing. And that's like our lives. The, the sin has been dealt with. It has been taken out of the fridge We've been changed. We're no longer under its rule and reign, but the, the smell is still there. There's still remnants of it knocking around with inside of us. And you see, there's a war, a war between the flesh and the spirit. And so, Paul encourages us to do what? Set our minds on the things of the spirit. See verse 5? Set your minds on the things of the Spirit. You have been changed. You, you're, you're under a new rule, under a new reign, so change your mindset. And this is going to be hard work. This is going to take effort. But set your minds. Change your minds. Focus your minds. Take them out of the way of this world. 
Now, what does it mean to set our minds on the thing of, things of the Spirit? What does that actually mean for us? Well, it means this, set our minds, scroll back up to chapter 8, verse 1, and what it means for us to be no longer under, under condemnation. We'll focus on what it means to be in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be free from our sin. Focus on what it means to be born again and to live under His ways. Think about how much we're loved in Christ. Think about how sure your salvation is. Love people in Christ. Think about His Word. Delight in it. Think about the good things that the Lord has given us in this world to enjoy. Set your minds on the things of the Spirit. Our time's gone, but let's say this to close. This battle is going to be difficult. This is not going to be easy. We're under no condemnation, but we're in this battle. And Keller says this, it means a ruthless, full-hearted resistance to sinful practice. It means to reject everything we know to be wrong, to declare war on attitudes and behaviors that are wrong, give them no quarter, take no prisoners, pull out all the stops, to live in the power of the Spirit means we'll set our minds on the things that are above, and it means that we will go to war with sin inside of ourselves. And that sounds like hard work, and that sounds like something that we don't want to do, doesn't it? But I like this little piece of sin that I have. That's like saying I like to go to the fridge and stick my head in it and smell the old moldy pasta. And, and more serious than that, Paul says, actually, if you don't set your minds on the things of the Spirit, you set your minds on the things of the flesh, verse 5, and these things, verse 6, will take you into the place of death. But if, if you will kill sin, if you will put it to death, if you'll pull out all the stops, take no prisoners, give them no quarter, declare war on your attitudes and behaviors that are wrong, then what will it bring us? Look at verse 6, and I think this is what we all want. Life and peace. You see, there's life. Life to be had by setting our minds on the things that are above. Life to be had as we focus in on the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done. Life to be had as we appreciate the small things that He has given to us, the beauty of His creation. Oh, and there's peace. There's peace for our minds. Peace for the the mind that, that runs to and fro, who, who, who can't seem to settle on their assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's peace for those who worry. There's peace for each of God's children. There's peace because there's no condemnation, past, present, and future. Our time has slipped through our hands. Romans chapter 8, as Nigel said, it's a little bit like Everest, and uh, it feels like we've only tied our boots to start to walk it. We're going to be in it for a, a number of weeks. How, how do we live? Somebody says to you this week, how do you live the Spirit-filled life? And they've already found out that you're a Presbyterian, so they're not expecting too much to come back. You say, let's go to Romans chapter 8. Let's read verses 1 through 11. And let's know that we are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that fills us. And then let us put sin to death, because the Spirit lives within us.